Thank you all for being here this morning. It's great to see all those of you that decided to come and worship God with us. I thank Adam for my prayer, for the prayer on my behalf, and I want to say also that it is my prayer that um, I be able to say something this morning that can be helpful to you and encouraging to you as you go along your walk uh, with Christ this morning. It's said that there are two constants in the world, death and taxes, and I would propose to add a third to that list, and that is conflict. Because wherever there's conflict or wherever there are people, there are conflict. Um, if you have a brother or a sister, you know about this. If you have more than one child, you know about this. If you have a, a husband or a wife, you know about this. In fact, if you have a pulse and have relationships with other people that have a pulse, you know about conflict. And we see conflict all throughout the scriptures and that conflict being dealt with in various ways, with varying degrees of success, and that success is dependent upon doing, thing God, doing things God's way, resolving that conflict God's way. And, you know, as we consider the entire Bible is, in fact, nothing but a handbook on how to deal with our conflict with God and the measures that God has taken to reconcile us to him and deal with the conflict that we have, which is our sin, and to somehow forgive that sin through Jesus Christ. As we consider conflict, uh, there are any number of relationships or aspects of our life that we can talk about, but in order to narrow our focus and keep our uh, time limit at a, at a minimum this morning, I want to focus on dealing with conflict between brethren within the church, either within the local congregation or with conflict you may have with brothers or sisters from another congregation. We need to find a way. We shouldn't be surprised to understand and know that conflict does arise within the church. And it's important for us to go to the scriptures and to understand what God would have us to do to handle and resolve that conflict. People like to avoid conflict. I suppose that many people are very rightly uncomfortable when confrontation and conflict happen. And I believe that's a very natural thing. It should be a natural thing. I think if we are comfortable with conflict and enjoy it, then we need to really take a hard look about the way we behave and treat other people. But having said that, I do believe there are right times to engage in conflict, and it needs to be done whether we enjoy it or not. We read in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. How can we reconcile this idea of being a peacemaker to the idea that sometimes we have to enter into conflict with our brethren? Does being a peacemaker mean we should avoid conflict at all costs? I don't know if there's a simple answer, but I think that we should consider that in some situations, being a peacemaker obviously means if we're having to make peace, that means there's an absence of peace in some situations, and therefore we're making peace in a situation where there's conflict. And so I believe to be a peacemaker means, number one, we do try to avoid conflict, but when we can't avoid it, then we're good at making peace God's way. And I think that's what Jesus means when we are to be peacemakers within the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The emphasis here is on the words, if it is possible, and as much as depends on you. This is sort of my attitude when it comes to driving in the snow and ice. We've experienced that here lately. It's not me I'm worried about, it's everybody else. Well, that should be our attitude when it comes to avoiding conflict. If I'm taking care of myself if I'm doing what I should be doing and treating other people the way that I would like to be treated and the way that they should be treated, then I'm going to avoid a lot of conflict. But sometimes it is just not possible. 
Sometimes we have to enter into conflict, and that conflict needs to be dealt with. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. This is why it's so important for us to engage in conflict when it's necessary. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. You know, I took the trash out yesterday, day before, and I walked in my backyard and I saw the hen bit starting to pick up through. It's, I hate hen bit, it's ugly. It defiles my yard. <laughs> I don't like it. My wife is, was saying something, we need to start spraying for weeds before too long. You know, bitterness and anger can be like that. That hen bit's just waiting all winter long. I'm, I'm assuming it's either the root or a seed or something. Uh, Brother Larry could tell me that probably, but it's been waiting for the right temperatures and the right amount of sunlight just to spring up and defile my yard. And that's exactly what bitterness does. If we don't deal with it in a decisive manner, in a proper manner, it'll just hang out there and it'll fester and it'll grow and eventually it's gonna spring up and it's gonna cause all kinds of problems. You know, when I, I think about my dad, he's one of the most godly men I know, but he hates conflict. He doesn't like to be in conflict with anybody about anything. He doesn't like haggling with a car salesman. He just says, I'd rather just go down there and pay what he, what he says it needs to be paid and be done with it. And sometimes it's kind of frustrating. It's like, you need to stand up for yourself a little bit. But you know, I have seen my dad make a stand. I've seen my dad make a stand for important things like the gospel, like doctrine, like standing against sinful behavior. And we need to understand the difference between avoiding conflict and, and trying to seek out conflict versus doing it when we have to. We don't want to, but we do it because we know it's the right thing to do. When do we engage in conflict? This isn't a comprehensive list that I'm gonna have for you today regarding when we engage in conflict. But what I do want us to understand is that sometimes it is necessary. Galatians chapter two, beginning in verse 11. It says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So let's stop there just a second. Paul is relating this story when he had to deal with Peter one time. He came to Antioch and Peter was there. And he says, I had to withstand him to his face. In other words, I confronted Peter about an issue. And what was happening is Peter was there at Antioch and he was mingling with the Gentile brethren there. And he was getting to know them as he rightly should have done. You know, and he was hanging out with them, doing what the Gentiles do, eating you know, catfish and bacon or whatever else was going on there that Jews normally don't do. And then along comes all these brethren, these Jewish brethren, and they, they're coming up there. And all of a sudden, Peter, he separates himself because he's afraid that, oh, I'm acting like the Gentiles and my Jewish brethren now are gonna shun me. So he separates himself and goes on about being the, the good Jew again with their traditions. And it influenced a lot of those, these Jewish people were doing the same thing. Even Barnabas, who was a man that the Bible very highly regards, says he was caught up in this even. And Paul confronted Peter about this. Why did he do so? Verse 14 tells us why. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. See, what happened was they were perverting the gospel in such a way. They were trying to, trying to say, that, well, we're Jews and you're Gentiles and we're different. The things we have to do are different. The things you have to do are different. And Paul said they were perverting the gospel. They weren't straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And so therefore, in defense of the gospel, Paul stood up and he confronted Peter and these other brethren. He says, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? In other words, you've got all this freedom in Christ 
and now you're telling these people they don't have the same freedoms or that you're different somehow than they are? And we have a responsibility, as Paul says in Galatians 1.8, if an angel or from heaven or any other preach gospel to you, then what we preach to you, let him be accursed. We have a responsibility to stand up for the gospel, to defend the gospel of Jesus. It's the foundation of everything we believe. And when that's perverted and when teachings pervert that, then we have to step up and defend the gospel. We have a, not only an authority to do so, but a responsibility and duty to do so. Number two, doctrinal error. In Acts chapter 15, we have a very similar situation, but on a broader scale. It says in verse number one, one there, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas, certain others of them, should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So what we have here, kind of the same type of thing, but on a very large scale. There were certain um, members of the church supposedly Jewish members who came in and said, hey, to the Gentiles, you've got to be circumcised like Moses said. You've got to do all these things that the law of Moses said you're supposed to do if you want to be saved. And it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. There was conflict over this issue. And this is an issue that needed to be resolved. So Paul and Barnabas and a few others go down to Jerusalem and they meet with the apostles and the elders and they, they figure out what do we need to do to resolve this conflict? as the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. Sometimes we as a church have to come together, the leadership and the members of the congregation have to come together and talk about things. And we have to resolve conflict. If it's a doctrinal matter, these things need to be addressed. And there needs to be a concern for that. Again, it says when there had been much dispute, there was, a, there was conflict over this issue. Now, Peter, apparently having learned his lesson, uh, I'm assuming this happened after our story at Antioch, or otherwise he's a backslider when he comes to Antioch. But in any case, he stands up and says, hey, y'all remember what happened in Acts chapter 10? Remember how God sent me to the house of Cornelius and I met with the Gentiles there and they received the Holy Spirit just like we did? Remember how God forgave them in Jesus Christ? And he, he doesn't require these things. Why are we doing this? He says in verse 10, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. He says, this law of Moses didn't, our fathers weren't able to keep it. We weren't able to keep it. That's why we need Jesus in the first place. Why are we gonna try to make them do it? He was correcting doctrinal error. And the church leaders came together to talk about this and resolve this conflict in a godly manner. Titus chapter one, verse nine, when talking about an elder and his responsibilities, he says, the elder may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Again, we have the authority, not only as elders and, and leaders of the church, but everyone, all of us have the authority and the duty to correct doctrinal error when we see that happening. And finally, to rebuke sinful behavior. We read in Acts chapter eight that Philip the evangelist has been preaching in the city of Samaria and a lot of good is being done there. A lot of people obeying the gospel. There's a man named Simon who lives there, who the Bible calls a sorcerer. And he deals with, he basically is a con man that uses parlor tricks to convince people that he can do magic and to, to help them with their problems or whatever the case may be. Well, he sees, um, after he obeys the gospel, actually, he becomes a Christian. Well, then Peter and John come from Jerusalem and start helping out. They're performing miracles. They're laying hands on people so that they can impart spiritual gifts to them. Well, Simon sees this. And Simon is not that far removed from his old life. He says, hey, here's a legitimate way I can do magic, right? I can really do miracles. 
and I can really make money off of this, and I can give it to other people. And he, and he says to Peter there, when Simon saw them laying all the hands, the apostles' Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. He says, give me this gift. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to give it to other people. I want to be able to, and Peter knew his heart, or he knew what he was thinking at any rate. He said, you have your money perish with you. Peter said, you're in sin. He rebuked Simon. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. You thought you could buy God's power with money? He says, repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray for God to forgive you. You're bound up in iniquity. I want to note something here that we're going to come back to several times this morning. This wasn't about punishing Simon. This wasn't about saying, you're wrong and I'm right. This wasn't about ostracizing him and disfellowshipping him in any way. This was about the restoration of their brother. Peter did rebuke him, and he rebuked him sharply. He said, you got a problem. You need to deal with it now. What did Simon do? How did he react to that? In verse 24, it says, he says, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. This was the point of why Peter did it. He wanted to restore his brother. Not just say you're wrong and get out of here, but you need to fix the problem and get right with God. And I'm, you know, spoiler alert, that's what this whole thing's about. This whole sermon is about restoration. It's about strengthening our relationship with each other and strengthening our relationship with God. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, Galatians chapter six, verse one, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This is what it's all about. We have, again, the authority, the responsibility. If we see our brother or sister overtaken in a fault, in a sin, to restore one, restore that person. He says, do it in a spirit of gentleness. In other words, the way God wants it to be done not in a way that ostracizes them or anything like that. So defense of the gospel, correction of doctrinal error, rebuke of sinful behavior. I think this is sort of a good framework for us to work in when we consider, well, when is it right for me and appropriate for me to engage in this kind of conflict and try to resolve it the way God wants me to do so? And I don't want to get into this morning a, a paint-by-numbers or step-by-step you know, process of if you have a conflict this is the first step, this is the second step, this is the third step. But what I do want to do is sort of paint broad strokes and talk about how general characteristics that we need to have and some, some steps we can take depending on the situation of how to resolve conflict. And to do that, I want to take a look at three different passages of teaching we have, two of those from Jesus this morning, that talks about dealing with these very kinds of things. Matthew chapter 18, starting off, beginning in verse number 15, Jesus says, moreover, brethren, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he'll not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So there's a lot going on here. You could probably do a whole sermon just on this one passage of scripture, but there's a couple of characteristics of, of conflict resolution here I wanna pull out of what Jesus is teaching us. Number one, what we have underlined there, tell him his fault between you and him alone. Jesus said, first thing, I know I said we're not doing step by step, but this is the first step every time, okay? Step by step, go to your brother, go to your sister, and you tell them the problem between you and him alone. Discretion is the word here. 
keeping the matter private. Don't go tell your husband or wife. Don't go tell the elders of the church. Don't tell your best friend. You go to the person who has wronged you and you tell them face to face. That's what Jesus said. And I gotta say, brethren, I think we fail. I do, I know. I know other people do too because I hear stories of people saying, hey, he went and told him this but didn't go to the person to talk about it. It happens too much. We don't follow the Lord's instruction on this enough. Go talk to him. Then if he won't hear, then if there's still a problem, then go find one or two other people. Maybe one of the elders or both the elders or maybe someone that you know that is a wise and godly counselor who can help in the matter and help settle it. But we still wanna have discretion when we deal with these problems. And it's not that we're trying to cover up sin. It's not that we're trying to air that out for anyone. But again, it's about the soul of the person we're dealing with. In James chapter five, verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. When he says cover a multitude of sins, he's not talking about trying to hide sin, not trying to sweep anything under the rug or make sure that nobody knows that somebody sinned. He's talking about covering the sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. He's talking about making things right with God between all parties involved. It may surprise you to know this, but I commit sin. I don't know if that surprises you or not. It shouldn't. I assume that all of you commit sin from time to time. I don't need to know what your specific sin is, and you don't need to know what mine is. That's between me and God. Or rather, I hope it's not between me and God anymore. I hope the blood of Jesus Christ is there. And I hope the same for you. We don't need to know specifics. The whole church doesn't need to know the problems that are going on. We need to keep it as quiet as possible because that's gonna save souls and that's gonna cover a multitude of sins in the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to what else he says here. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. This is going back to what we talked about a while ago. Restoration. This is what it's about. This is why we want to be discreet. This is why we want to handle it the way God wants it to be handled. It's all about restoration. It's all about making people right with God and with each other. If he won't hear you, then go get another one or two people and go, why? For the purpose of restoration. If he won't hear you then, then go to the church, which by the way, should hardly ever happen. And if we follow these steps, I believe what will hardly ever happen. But if, if that's the case, then take it to the church. What? For the purpose of what? To restoration to restore the brother. And then if that doesn't happen, then, then he's like to you a heathen. And that's, again, rarely happens, should rarely happen. But why are we doing that? Why are we treating him like a heathen and a tax collector? Restoration, to save his soul. That's exactly what happened in 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. They had a big problem there with sin and they said, you need to get this guy out of you, out of your congregation. You need to get rid of him. He says, you deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of flesh, Why? So we can be punished and ostracized? No, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Resolving this kind of conflict, it's all about strengthening our relationship with God and with each other. Let's go to Matthew chapter five. Beginning of verse number 22, Jesus said, I say, to you who, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Let's stop there for just a second. So we're talking about anger here. We're talking about uncontrolled anger or maybe unjustified anger. You know, a lot of times we can get angry with someone, maybe not even over a sinful matter, 
Maybe just something they do annoys us and hits us the wrong way. And, we, and that makes us become angry. And we need to, first of all, we need to control that anger. We need to take a deep breath. We need to count to 10. Whatever method you use to control your anger, you need to do that. And we need to approach any kind of conflict that we have with a clear head and be able to make sound and reasoned arguments. I think probably a lot of times we're gonna come away thinking, you know what, this isn't really that big a deal. But Jesus says, you need to control your anger. Why is it so important to control your anger? He says, you'll be in danger of hellfire if you don't control your anger. We read in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. This is why it's so important for us to control our anger. Because when our anger gets out of control, then the devil takes over. We've given place to the devil, and therefore we're doing things the devil's way and not God's way. And that's not gonna resolve conflict in any satisfactory manner. Controlling our anger is key in the process of resolving conflict with our brethren. Verse number 23, let's continue on with what Jesus says there. Matthew chapter five. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and and remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And what we're talking about here is a, a sense of urgency. Dealing with these things decisively and quickly. Again, going back to that idea of that anger, if we don't deal with it, that anger is just gonna build up. Even if we're good at controlling our anger, unresolved anger that is left alone is still gonna be hard for anyone to deal with. And we're going to have to deal with that decisively and quickly and feel a sense of urgency in dealing with those kinds of things. We read, um, you know, he talks about there, leave your gift at the altar. Go, go be reconciled to your brother, then come back. What is he talking about there? He's talking about it affecting our worship. When we have conflict with our brethren in our relationships, that not only affects our relationships with each other, it affects our relationship with God. And we cannot worship in, the, in spirit and truth, we cannot worship God in a true manner when we've got somebody that dislikes us or has a problem with us or we have a problem with them. That needs to be handled quickly and decisively. The scriptures talk about that in 1 Peter chapter 3 about husbands dwelling with their wives and understanding, giving honor to them. And if we don't do that, our prayers can be hindered. Our relationships with our wife dictate our relationship with God in some ways. If we can't handle that kind of relationship, how can we pray to God and have a relationship with him? So that's why we need to have this urgency. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse number 4. Paul has some pretty interesting things to say here, I think, about resolving conflict. He says there in verse number 4, If you have judgments concerning the things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? Stop there just a second. He's talking about brethren who are in conflict. And he's talking about them trying to settle that outside the church. Literally taking your brother to court or your sister to court in order to resolve a problem that you have. Problems within the church being solved outside the church. And obviously on the face of that, it seems ridiculous to us, but apparently this was happening. And the question he asked them is, he said, this is, I say this to your shame. Is there not one wise person among you who you can go to, who can be the mediator between this argument? Not one wise person who can look at this situation and make a judgment. Why are you going outside the church? This is a church matter. 
And now somebody say, yeah, we don't want to air the church's dirty laundry in front of the outside world. You know, we don't want the, the community to know that we've got problems in the church. We want to keep that hidden. That's not what he's talking about here. Remember what the point of all this is? Restoration. The point of all this is to settle matters in such a way that our relationships with each other and with God are the way they're supposed to be. How are we gonna accomplish that if we take it outside the church? If you take a problem to a, a, a civil judge or anything like that, a jury of some kind, they are not concerned with what the Bible says about your relationship. They don't care what your relationship, they don't care if somebody's committed sin. All they care about is what the law says, whether it's the city, state, federal, whatever law it is. They don't care about your relationship with God. They're gonna resolve the matter in the way that the law says to do it. Why would we want, at that point, we've already failed, as we'll read next. He says there in verse number seven, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go outside gold to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Now it's getting real. <laughs> this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where really, we really find out what we're made of. Because what he says here, if you've decided to go outside the church, you've already failed. Because they can't solve the problem the way God wants it solved. He says, you know what? It's better off if you just let yourself be cheated. It's better off if you just let yourself be wronged. And that's hard for us to take some time just to let it go. Jesus says, you go talk to your brother, you and him alone. If we're not willing to do that, let it go. If it's not important enough for us to have the courage to step up and say, this is important enough to me that I can go talk to my brother or my sister face to face and try to deal with this. If I'm not willing to do that, then I need to let it go. Now, this doesn't mean that we should excuse sin or doctrinal error or anything else, but it does mean we need to be willing to handle it the way God wants us to handle it and not do it some other way like the world says to do it. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Rather than doing things the wrong way, you just be cheated. And you handle it the way, you, whether that involves church discipline or not, whatever the case may be, do it God's way. And if that brother still won't be restored, that's on them, not you. We need to be willing and able to let it go. Another saying that we hear is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and I, I think we all can agree on that. You know, I take allergy medicine every day so my allergies don't get out of control so I don't get a sinus infection. I take blood pressure medicine so my blood pressure doesn't get high so I don't have a stroke. That's called preventative medicine, right? It's much easier for me to prevent a sinus infection than it is to get over one. I have to go to the doctor and get a steroid shot and get antibiotics. It takes me like a week to feel better when I could just take my allergy medicine and not deal with it for the most part, right? So going back to this idea of conflict avoidance, when if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, what can we do? How can we live? How can we act towards other people that will prevent us from having to enter into conflict? I've just got a few verses here, and uh, to be completely and open and transparent, I had about 150 other verses lined up behind these that I could have thrown in here. So a lot of times somebody will come up after church, oh, you know what verse you could have used? I'm like, yeah, I could have used that one and a lot of, a lot of others too. But these kind of jumped out as me as ones that I think can be very helpful uh, when we're dealing and trying to prevent conflict and dealing with it. So James chapter one, verse 19 
So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We need to be willing to listen and not be so quick to inject our opinion and our think-sos into a conflict. We need to be willing, because we need to remember the other person we're dealing with has true feelings about whatever this matter is. We need to be willing to listen to them, to hear them out, and to try to understand their perspective instead of being so quick to put in, well, this is why you're wrong. Listen to why they think you're wrong, and that may help resolve the problem. Proverbs chapter 15, verse one says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If there's one thing that I've learned in 20 years of IT and sending emails back and forth is that tone is everything. I don't like dealing with any kind of conflict via email because you cannot tell tone of voice and you always assume the worst or somebody on the other end always assumes the worst about your tone when you send an email. And so I like to at least pick up the phone and talk to them face to face. If not, if they're in the same office, I'm gonna get up and walk to their, their cubicle or office and talk to them about it. Because tone is everything. And when we deal with people, and we, especially when we're engaging in conflict, you can really tell what, how another person feels and reacts by their tone of voice. And what he's saying here is a soft answer turns away wrath. If somebody's coming at me, bro, with their anger, and I answer that with a soft answer, if I don't come right back at them with the same anger, then that's gonna, that's gonna smooth things out. But if I come back with them with anger, it's just gonna stir the pot more and then we're back to doing the things the devil's way. That is not how we handle conflict. Luke chapter 17, verse three says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. The whole concept we've been talking about this whole time. Okay, yeah, if you see sin, rebuke. If he repents, forgive. And we're gonna come back to that here in just a minute. When a man's, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16 and seven. This is just simply saying, hey, when you're living the way God wants you to live, you're gonna be a lot less conflict in your life. Even those that might be considered to be your enemies, those that don't like you, if you're living the way you're supposed to, you'll, leave, you'll even be at peace with them. That's a great thing for us to think about. We can avoid so much conflict just by being the kind of person God wants us to be. And finally, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. This is kind of repeating what we talked about earlier about letting it go. This doesn't mean we have to overlook sin. This doesn't mean we have to overlook doctrinal error, but what it does mean is that if we're irritated with somebody but it's not important for us to engage in that kind of conflict, maybe we should just let it go. We know it's not a matter that's gonna affect somebody's soul. Just let it go. Just overlook that transgression. And it is to your glory when you do that. Ultimately, I think everything we talked about this morning is the tip of a very large iceberg, obviously. But when we consider resolving conflict in the way God wants it to be done, this is key. It may be the most important thing to think about learning how to forgive each other and really doing that is, I think, to me, ultimately the most important thing that you could take away from this, the study. It's really hard sometimes to forgive. Forgiving someone may be hard and oftentimes is hard. And somebody may say, well, you just don't know what they did to me. Or I might say, that person really hurt me and I don't know that I can ever forgive what they did to me. I don't know that I can ever get over that. How do we do that? 
How do you forgive someone who's wronged you so deeply? And you, you know that it may happen again. You don't want to live that again. What do you do? The answer is, is really simple, but it's not easy. And the answer is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. He says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Put those things away. Get rid of them. And then he says, replace it with something. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Yeah, it's hard to forgive. But I wanna ask this question. Do you think that it was easy for God to forgive me? Was it easy for God to forgive you? Because that's how God forgives us. He doesn't forgive me because I deserve it. I don't deserve to be forgiven, and neither do you. But God forgives us. He forgave me because of what Jesus Christ did. He forgave me because the blood that was shed at Calvary was pure and perfect and innocent and can wash away my sins. And therefore, God says, okay, I'll forgive you because of that. And that's not easy, but he did it anyway. And so therefore, you and I are able to forgive one another or should be able to forgive one another for the very same reason. Someone that wronged you and did something to you may not deserve it, or you think they don't deserve it, but you can forgive them for the same reason God forgave you. And that is because Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the price for that sin. That person's sin against you was paid for by the blood of Christ. And you can forgive them for the same reason that God forgives you. As we consider conflict, the most important conflict that you and I can need to deal with and the most urgent need we need to have is resolving our conflict with God. It may be this morning that you have not resolved your conflict with God. Maybe you've never been obedient to the gospel. Understand and realize this morning that God has entered into a resolution with you. He's made every step necessary to have resolution with the conflict that you have with him. He has sent his only son, Jesus, into this world to show us how to live and then to die on the cross and shed his blood. And for that reason, he will forgive your sins if you're obedient to the gospel. If you want to be baptized this morning, if you're willing to repent of your sins and confess Jesus Christ as the son of God, we are ready, we're willing, we're able, and we feel an urgency as much as you do to do that right now and not wait. Maybe you're in conflict with God for other reasons and need the prayers of the church, you're in conflict with your brethren, or any other reason you may need the prayers of the church, we ask you to please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing the song selected.